0: This morning we're in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. In verse 13, where we began this morning, Jesus asked his disciples, What are people saying? Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's referring to Himself. Several of them seem to speak up. Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah. Oh, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then He makes it a little more personal. He doesn't tell them that's the wrong answer, but He probes a little more deeply when He says, Who do you say that I am? And I want us to notice, when he asked the general question about what are people saying, they responded, several of the disciples seemed to have an answer, if it was somebody else's answer. But when he said, who do you say that I am? Notice only one disciple answers. Simon Peter is the only one that speaks this time. Now, lots of our commentators say this is a literary device that Matthew is using to make sure we know what the right answer is and that Peter represents all the disciples. And that may all be true. But I think it may reveal something else to us. I think when it comes to making weighty declarations, fewer of us are ready to stand up or speak out. I think those other disciples were pretty happy that Peter was the one to speak. They weren't sure, perhaps, what the right answer is. So, oh, Simon Peter, he's a boisterous one. Kind of dodged a bullet that he spoke. We're starting schools. Have you been in a classroom lately? Even if you haven't, I bet you remember this. The teacher's reviewing last year's material, things that we all are supposed to know, and she asks a question to the class, and nobody is sure of the answer. And what happens? Everybody begins to look down, right? All of a sudden, everybody's busy trying to find a pencil or something. They're relieved if one student raises the hand and says the answer. It's like... We're glad, aren't we, in all kinds of occasions, even as adults, when there's a time to stand up and say something, if somebody else will do it. I'm not sure that's not what was happening with these disciples when Jesus makes the pointed question, but who do you say that I am? It's a different question than what are people saying. And the expectation is that we will have an answer. That we will have an answer as Christians that we'll be able to answer the question. Are you ready? If someone says to you, who is this Jesus fellow that you are following? Would you have something to say? It would be important to have something to say when somebody's inquiring, when someone's exploring, when someone's looking, when someone needs some help to be able to have an answer and explain your faith. We have about 30 students just starting their studies here at the church every Sunday morning now for the next several months in confirmation studies. It's their opportunity to be ready to answer some questions about their faith. Their parents, their grandparents, others may have brought them here, raised them in the faith. But we believe it's really important when they get to middle school to study it for themselves and be ready to stand up so that I can ask them. We'll invite them to come here to the railing. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you put your whole trust in His grace? We'll ask them a whole series of questions. We help them prepare, but finally they have to stand up. And they have to have an answer. They have to be able to articulate their faith. Oh, they can ask all the questions they want during their study times, but there will come a time when we will ask them the questions And they will need to answer. Many of us had that opportunity, but somehow after that failed to continue to grow in our faith and became more and more reticent to give an answer. This sermon series for the whole month, we're talking about what United Methodists expect of each other. What are our membership vows? What are our commitment vows to God? If someone wants to come and join the church, as I was saying, we don't re-baptize them if they've already been baptized in any part of the Christian family. But we're going to ask them if they're ready to participate here. We're going to ask them if they're ready to fulfill a membership commitment, which includes prayers, presents, gifts, service, and witness. I've put a form of that question in your outline. It's some form of this question Out of our liturgy, you can find it in the front of your hymnal. Will you faithfully participate here through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? And your witness. That's the one we're going to focus on today. We've already talked about those others these last few weeks, but today we want to think about witness. It's the one that's been added the most recently. It wasn't... For many of you, it wasn't on the list when you came, but you still need to be able to fulfill this one. A few years ago, this one was added because United Methodists recognized that The church was growing most quickly, most rapidly, expanding, reaching new people on the continent of Africa. In countries like the Ivory Coast, the Congo, Liberia, Methodism exploding. Lots of people, thousands of people, some places millions of people coming to Christ through the Methodist movement there. And one of the things some of the folks wondering why that was happening noticed was that when they had people come forward... They had included this idea of witnessing. And they asked each and every one of them, Are you ready not only to support us through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service, but with your witness? So at a general conference, that was added to our membership vows for the whole denomination. We added it. We adopted it to emphasize that each and every one of us bears this responsibility to witness We believe it as Methodist, but you can see it in the text here as well. When Jesus begins to ask the question and probe more deeply, Simon Peter answers, Matthew says in verse 16, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now there's a lot there. Messiah or Christ is the anointed one. Son has to do with that relational character between Father and Son, between God the Father and Creator and Jesus as the Christ, the one who's come to reveal this to us, son of the living God. The idea that God is still alive. God is still creating. God is still working. That's what we believe, that God is active and alive in our midst and in our presence. Simon Peter gives a a really good answer. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's saying, you've got it. You've got it, Peter. You were willing to bear the responsibility, and you gave us a good answer. Now, so often we think that all the revelation, all the witness to God's love in the world comes through Jesus. But this text is saying, oh, no, Simon Peter had a responsibility to bear. You and I have a responsibility to bear. Our witness is a critical part of the work of God. We have something called the Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church. It contains the history of the church and our historic beliefs and theology. It contains all kinds of information about how we organize our churches and how we work together within the body of Christ, how we interact with other parts of the body of Christ. But there's just one section I want to read to you this morning. The title of the section is The Ministry of All Christians, the ministry of all Christians, and this is what it says the people of God, who are the church made visible in the world, must convince the world of the reality of the gospel or leave it unconvinced. There can be no evasion or delegation of this responsibility. The church is either faithful as a witnessing and serving community or it loses its vitality and its impact on an unbelieving world. Our witness must convince the world of the reality of the gospel or leave it unconvinced, it says. The church, that's us, is either faithful as a witnessing and serving community, or it loses its vitality and its impact on an unbelieving world. We have a responsibility to share God's love with others as we have come to know it in Jesus Christ. I've said in a previous sermon that I thought our prayers and our presence prepare us to give, to become givers. I would suggest to you that our prayers, presence, giving, and serving prepare us to witness. They provide the foundation for our witness. Think about this. A deep prayer life guides and strengthens us. A vital worship life teaches and inspires us giving regularly and sacrificially shapes us into more generous people serving others in the name of christ changes us into more compassionate people all of those go together and they make up our lived experience and they make up our witness they prepare us to be vital witnesses in the world these vows we ask you to commit to are for life, we say. They are lifelong, and they lead us to life, abundant life. It's through those things that we ask you to commit to is the way we come to know Christ alive in our lives because we are in conversation. We're present here in worship. We're giving as Christ is instructing. We're serving in His name. That enlivens our experience and develops our witness It gives us something to talk about as well as something to do in terms of how we experience the living God and how we can share that with others as Peter did. Dr. Biggs is here in worship every Sunday supporting me in the Boston Avenue Church. You know, many of you, when I first came here, he was our leader. I came as a youth pastor and worked for nearly 10 years. But then with his help, I transitioned into evangelism. It was part of my responsibility then to contact those people who were searching for a church home. Often after one of our worship services, I had the opportunity to introduce people to him, new people to our congregation that he had not had opportunity to meet. Sometimes they had not taken their membership vows. They had not made a membership commitment yet. And so he would talk with them. Often we would come back into the sanctuary and he would talk about prayers and presents and gifts and service was the last vow then. And he would talk about how we can serve in the mission field and how we can serve here in the life of the church. But then he would always say, but the most important service you can ever render to Christ is how you live your life every day. I remember hearing him say that over and over, that it's our Christian life. That's our witness. How you live your life every day is your witness. How are you doing in fulfilling that commitment that we make to each other and to God? To be a living example of the love of God. Come to the world through Christ Jesus our Lord. A wise man I heard speak once, ask, is your life a model to follow, or is it a cautionary sign that says, "Beware!" We can be both kinds of examples, or maybe you've heard that saying that who you are shouts so loudly, "I cannot hear what you say. If the way we live is not consistent with what we say we believe, it's not a very effective witness. Well, the text goes on to say, if you get to the place that Peter is, and you're ready to make a faith declaration, something like, you are the Messiah, son of the living God, that God's power is right there with you when you make that witness. Did you notice that? As soon as Peter makes that statement... Then Jesus begins to speak and says, I will build. That's something Jesus is going to do through Peter. Then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And then a little bit further back up there. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus is pointing to the fact that once we recognize what God is doing in him and we're willing to share it with others, the very power of God will be at work through us that the power and presence of the divine spirit will be with us as we make our witness, as we live our lives, as we share our experience as followers of Christ. We do not have to do this alone, but we have to play our role in it. My role is critical. Your role is critical. We have to take a stand sometimes. We have to speak up sometimes. We have to share what our experience is with someone else if they're ever going to come and know the great love of God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're following the outline right now, I just need to give you a warning. I'm getting ready to make a right turn. I wrote the sermon by Wednesday so the outline can go in the bulletin. I had experience this weekend. I want to tell you about that rather than the book but i'm going to give you the two blanks because i know some of you won't be able to leave the building without knowing <laughs> okay so the book that i was going to tell you about is the boys in the boat it's a great book i'll tell you about it next sunday the quote right there comes from the book the last blank the word is whole so now you can complete your outline and then stay with me here <laughs> yesterday morning my two daughters and I got up and went over to Turkey Mountain for a run. We ran up in the trees and on the dirt paths and had a great time. But it was hot. We slept in a little bit. So it was hotter than we would have liked. We were sweating when it was done. And then my daughter said, hey, Dad, we have to go home and take the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> well, that's a good time to do it if you're hot and sweaty. Have you heard of this ice bucket challenge? I first heard about it. I saw it on Sports Center, ESPN. ESPN, a young uh, group of football players were having these buckets of ice water poured over them. It's a fundraiser for an ALS, for the organization that researches and is trying to fight that disease. Well, I saw it. It was funny seeing them all get drenched. But one of her friends had sent her a message and said, I've taken the challenge and now it's your turn. You have 24 hours. Well, I thought it was funny, but I wasn't going to do it. But when she said, hey, Dad, let's go home and do this, I said, okay. So we went home and got a big bucket out of the pantry and put some ice in there and filled it up with water and went out in the front yard. And, of course, you're supposed to video this so you can share it with others, right, so you can call somebody else out for them to be a part of that. So we got our cameras out, which all have video cameras on them these days, and we took turns. So my daughter Grace did it, my daughter Hope did it, I did it. We got my wife out of the house and brought her out so that she could do it. It was fun. It was cold, but it was refreshing in a way. But what I want us to realize is how this got started. It was not by the ALS organization. It was some young adults who heard about their work and had been affected by it and thought maybe we could do something to Make a difference and they started this ice bucket challenge now. It's gone viral as they say or spread like wildfire as we used to say all across the country people doing this and not just pouring the water but making a donation. One of the young women that heard me talk about it at 830 said that she had read that last year they raised about three million dollars this year already they have raised over 30 million dollars. But the difference is it's person to person. The guy who was writing about this in an article I read recently said, you know, the difference is if I get a letter from an organization asking me for money, I consider it spam. But when my sister writes me and says she's getting ready to run a 5K and she's raising money for an organization, I send money. It's different when the witness comes from someone you know. When the witness comes from a friend or a relative, we're much more likely to respond. There's a lot more power in a personal witness, a personal contact, than there is in an email or a form letter. It's true about the Christian faith as well. When I call somebody on the phone and say, I hope you come to Boston Avenue Church or welcome, I hope you come back, they might consider me Spam. I hope not, but they might. I get a lot of recorders when I make phone calls. But if you know them and you call them, they're going to pick up the phone. You're going to have a chance to witness. You're going to have a chance to extend an invitation. If Joel invites someone to join the choir, it looks like he's at work. But if one of these sitting up here invites you to come and sit next to them, it's a different invitation, isn't it? It's so true. We can't just rely on the witness that Peter made or the gospels make. God's calling us to be a witness as well. We too have an opportunity to share our story, to extend an invitation, to tell somebody else about what we have come to know. We Boston Avenue Church or a church in which we grew up. There's all kinds of ways that we can witness. There's all kinds of ways that we can share. The love of God we've come to know in Christ with somebody else. Have you heard of this crowdsourcing or crowdsource funding? It's going, it goes on the Internet. Somebody has an idea. They, put, they, they need some money for it. So they put the idea out there and they say, I need X number of dollars. And they just ask people to contribute. Some people have raised hundreds of dollars. Some thousands. But a few ideas have generated millions of dollars by asking, simply by asking, having the idea and asking,